Hello? Hey, how's it going? It's going good. I spent the whole day sitting and reading for school. Uh, so it's really great to be taking a break and chatting with you. So what's going on? Man, I envy you getting to sit the whole day and read. I need to go back to school. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm i assuming you noticed this, but on our Instagram and our Facebook, we posted this week's uh, Which Josh question. And uh, it was, Which Josh has a Google Doc where he keeps a list of Josh's rules? Uh, did you catch that? I did, and I've been accused of putting way too many things in spreadsheets, and they're probably correct. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy to report that this is your bailiwick and not mine. So Josh from Missouri, you've got a Google Doc titled Josh's Rules, and now you need to tell me about it. Yes, and uh, did you ever watch NCIS? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Okay, so the the main character has this set of rules that is constantly quoted throughout the entire series. Do you remember this? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so uh, that is where this is coming from. Uh, when I was leaving my last job, I watched that show. I had to spend uh, about four weeks shredding documents uh, from all of the years that I had been uh, at this other church. I literally had to sit there every single day for three or four or five hours and just shred document after document after document because it was all this stuff that the church didn't need anymore and no one would know except for me which things was necessary and which things wasn't necessary. So they asked me to uh, to shred all this stuff before I went. And it was so much, by the way, that I actually burned out a paper shredder in my attempt to shred all of this <laughs> stuff. But... Um, <laughs> I was so bored out of my mind that I went, I watched several seasons of NCIS while I was shredding documents, uh, getting ready to leave my old church. And I found this idea of having a list of rules that are so clear and written down that everybody around you eventually knows them by number. I thought it was a fascinating idea because there are certain things I say or do over and over and over again. I mean, you may not have known I had this document, but I suspect you're not surprised. No, I am not surprised at all. However, I'm never going to memorize what numbers goes with what rule. But I believe that uh, you have all of these in a document. And I imagine I've even heard most of these rules at one time or another. I would think so. So I'll share some of them with you. I doubt uh, we have time for me to read all of them. But uh, as we go, you got to be thinking about, I know you don't have a document like this, but I know you have things you say over and over again, either to your kids or at work, or to your wife, or to your friends. There are just certain things you have found yourself saying. And I think most people have this. Uh, they're not all super intense. Some of them are serious. Some of them aren't. Most of them have some weird story behind them. But it's funny, I was reading these to my kids uh, earlier today. And as I was reading them, my daughter was dying laughing. <laughs> I was like, why are you laughing so hard? Like, what what makes these funny? And she said, the, the thing that makes them funny is that you say them all the time. 
this is you <laughs> in print. <laughs> I thought to myself, oh dear, I'm not sure that's going to translate into a podcast. But nevertheless, I'm going to throw some of these out there and you'll have to tell me what you think. Uh, so uh, some of them are super goofy. Like uh, number five is always bring headphones. Any guesses what the context was that made me make this an official law of my life? Okay, so I just, I'm picturing squirmy four to six-year-old kids on an airplane that desperately need to find a reason to sit. Uh, so that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing we cannot travel without our kids having headphones. That's hilarious. That is a good application of a great life rule, but not even close to what I mean by this. Um, right. Not even a little bit. So have you ever been on a church retreat? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever been on a church retreat where you had to sleep in some sort of bunk style room with other guys? Oh, Yes. I would not have considered bringing headphones, though. I assume you're saying the noise is horrible and you can't sleep. It is the profound, I mean, like, divinely inspired level of snoring that is <laughs> inevitable in any situation that, yes, I, I know that a lot of people in this situation would bring earplugs, but earplugs are very unhelpful to me. Because what they really do is they get rid of most of the sound. And when there is just a little bit of sound in the room, it just helps me focus. <laughs> it does not actually help me drain it out or, or ignore it. Sure. Uh, so I need other sound to replace the sound of the incredible, incredible snorers. That is why number five is always bring headphones. Because the first time I was on a church retreat, we were at this gorgeous campground up in Maine. And it was seriously one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It is this one spot where literally five different rivers converge. And so you are on this like point sticking out into this spot where it is just different rivers in every single direction. Everywhere you walk, every step of the ground is just stunningly beautiful. And I had gotten there wildly early in the morning because when you're pastoring and you're going to a retreat, this is not a retreat for you. It's a retreat for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so you are running this thing, which means you're getting there hours in advance of everybody else in order to do setup and take like prep work and organization and admin and all of these things that you have to do in order to make it actually seem like it's running seamlessly. So I'm doing all of that stuff. And then we're doing all the, the events and the Bible studies and the music and the late night campfires and all of these random things. And by like 11 o'clock at night, I am a deeply introverted person. And by 11 o'clock at night, I was done. Yeah. And I lay down in my bunk. And for about five minutes, it was perfect. And then another one of the guys came into the cabin and he laid down and in the midst of listening to this beautiful, like the crickets and 
the like owls and all of that, all of a sudden I hear the most erratic, painful snoring (laughs) that I have ever heard in my life. I literally think my entire body left the bed as I like jolted up. I did not sleep one more minute all night. I spent about half the night interceding for him that he would be supernaturally healed of whatever it was that was causing the snoring. I spent the other half of the night trying to tell myself stories that would hopefully distract me from the snoring. I attempted to completely cover my face with a pillow in hopes that maybe I would just asphyxiate because at (laughs) some point even that's better. Um, And I I just, none of it worked. And so, number five, always bring headphones. All right. All right. Uh, Wow. I would have never, never guessed that to be the source of your rule number five. There you go. What about you, though? You've got to have some life rules, thoughts, even if they are not this formally codified. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I actually do as as I think about it, but I'll I'll go with the non-serious one first or, or the one I'm most passionate about, actually, and that is you should not talk about football during baseball season. (laughs) <laughs> I say this all year long. I get so sick of talking about football, football, football all summer long. Football isn't even happening right now. Baseball's happening. Can we stop theorizing about every quarterback, every defense, every offensive coordinator, every new coach? I I don't care anymore. But the NFL, I kind of hand it to them. I mean, they've they've stretched out the calendar. They talk about the combine. They talk about the NFL draft. They talk about off-season workouts, training camp, preseason games, everything under the sun so that the talking heads can keep talking about anything but baseball. And let me just put it in perspective because I'm this is my rant and I'm going to take my little soapbox and I'm going to use it to the utmost and then I'm going to let this go for today. Football has 17 preseason games and 32 teams. That equates to 272 games a year. That is the sum total of what the talking heads have to talk about. Baseball has 162 games per season, 30 teams, for a sum total of 2,430 regular season games. Can we stop talking about football during baseball (laughs) season. There is plenty of content here. Let's drop the NFL for a little while. We'll get back to it. Don't worry. Let's just talk about baseball. So anyway, there you go. I don't know if I just alienated listeners or made a bunch of friends, but I just, I can't stand it. That's hilarious. So I'm actually uniquely excited about baseball right now because we have the MLB online subscription package. Same. So at least where I used to live, which was 14 miles from Fenway, it covered every single game except the games of your home team. Yeah. My home team is no longer my favorite team. (laughs) So suddenly I get to watch the Red Sox games. 
It's great. So I'm with you. And I don't particularly like football. So I am more than happy to not ever talk about football, but especially during baseball season. Yeah, I, I like football. I actually, I don't get a chance to watch it very much because of school and life and all that stuff. But And games are six and a half thousand hours long. Well, you know, so is baseball. I mean, it, which so it's, it's, it's the same time commitment. Um, actually, baseball is more because there's more games. But yes, I'm a little bitter about that. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to follow. But at the same time, you always know it's like there's a game to watch every single day. You just know that I do like you can that. Do that. All right. So give me something off of your list that is like super deep where you're like, I took the time to write this down and I'm so proud that I did. And somebody needs to give me an award for it. <laughs> uh, I am having trouble narrowing it down based on that criterion, which <laughs> says a lot about me. All right. Here is one that is deeply me. I will pick this one. You've heard me say this kind of thing before. There's like three or four that hit this kind of like really deep. I actually am genuinely passionate about it. Uh, but this one, more than anything else, is something that I feel like is something that is unique to me. If I stole this from somebody else, I don't remember doing so which is, I think, the actual definition of originality, <laughs> having stolen it long ago enough that you don't remember doing so. But here it is. Number 13, leaders always absorb the awkwardness. Mm. Have I ever said that kind of thing to you? I can't remember if we've had that conversation. You have said uh, similar things. I actually, the best treatment I got of this content was actually in a book that I just recommended to you recently, uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. And that book it had a very similar vibe, if not the same idea. So I don't think you stole it from Steve Cuss because you haven't read the book. So I, I think you can still be original. But yeah, uh, tell me what inspired that and why that came to be such so ingrained in you. Yeah, absolutely. So in... Church leadership, whether you are a small group leader or you are a ministry team leader or you are someone on the stage or uh, you are a pastor or whatever you are, and I'm sure this is true in other contexts of leadership. I am just ignorant of most other contexts of leadership, so I can't speak to them. Uh, but in, in all of those kind of ministry leadership roles, what differentiates a decent leader from an excellent leader is having a radar that catches situations that most people would either ignore or avoid or not notice because of the potential awkwardness. So a couple examples of this. A guest walks into church. There is potential awkwardness there. And a great church leader is looking at that guest and thinking, what might be awkward that I can prevent the awkwardness before it even starts happening? Mm. How can I anticipate potential awkwardness and make sure it doesn't happen? So, for example, one of the things we do every week at my church is check and make sure there's toilet paper in the bathroom throughout the service. Because <laughs> how awkward would it be if you were sitting going to the bathroom as a first-time guest at a church and you suddenly realize there's no toilet paper. That's super awkward. And that could 
taint your whole experience. But then on the flip side of this, I think there are a lot of conversations in the discipleship process that most people avoid having just because it's going to be awkward or they give a pat answer because so for here's here's a classic one like a, a really great christian starts dating some guy or some girl and that person is nowhere near following jesus what does everybody say to that person 99% of people say hey congratulations <laughs> right even right. though everybody knows this is not going to end well but nobody wants to sit down and say Hey, can I talk to you about the, the potential problems this might have? The leader takes the awkwardness on themselves and is willing to have an awkward conversation, an awkward interaction, and is willing to make it awkward for themselves because they know that the awkwardness is going to exist and somebody has to take the initiative to seize the awkwardness. Yeah. And if the leader doesn't do it, no one else is going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, I've got a parenting example of this very thing. My daughter recently started getting interested in a guy and she's, she's sophomore in high school. And this is kind of a first time, actually, my oldest son uh, didn't date in high school. Uh, so this is kind of our, our a parenting first for us to guide a high schooler through their first dating encounter. So I noticed that she had a picture on her phone of her and this guy that she's interested in. So I used that as a springboard to start talking to her about dating and what that looks like and all of these things. And it was a conversation she knew she needed to have with me and she had kind of already had with her mom, but it was you know, you got to embrace the awkward. And like I told her, I said, I was, I was looking forward to having this conversation so that we would break the ice. And so it would be now a thing that we talk about. But prior to this, it wasn't a thing we talked about. I mean, we talked about in generalities, but not with specifics, not with a name attached, not to a particular situation. And so now that the ice is broken, we've had that first conversation. We've gotten the awkwardness absorbed in some way. Now it's a conversation that we have. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Parenting is such a good example of this. How much trouble and pain could we absorb in our uh, children's lives if we asked weird questions like, hey, when was the last time you saw something pornographic? Mm. Or when our kids are younger, have you seen anything pornographic yet? Right? Like that's an awkward conversation. And as parents... We desperately want one answer to be true. <laughs> and therefore, we're tempted to not ask at all in order to avoid the potential discovery that we the other answer is true. Yeah, yeah. So we are avoiding the awkwardness, which results in my kids sitting in isolation with whatever the issue is. They're now stuck being awkward because they can't talk about it because I'm the big person. If I can't bring it up, surely neither can they. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, Andy Stanley had a, a sermon series on relationships. And uh, he said, well, you need to, 
if, if you're in friction with somebody, you need to go to them. You need to move the relationship toward them. Um, and he said, why do I say that you have to do that? Well, because you're the bigger person. And I know that because you're always telling me how bad they are. So you're obviously the bigger person. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. Right? Uh, so, yeah. you Go Andy Stanley. Exactly. Uh, you got to hand it to good preachers. Oh, he's so funny and timely. Uh, but yeah, so that's it. Number 13, leaders always absorb the awkwardness. Nice. What about you? Do you have a one that kind of falls into the general parenting family arena? Not particularly. I have one... Like you, you talked about originality, and and that's something that you either stole from so long ago that you can't recall, or you actually truly came up with it. Um, this one is blatantly plagiarized, but I use it all the time. One of our professors uh, at school, he was from Arkansas, and I don't know if it was him or uh, the region of Arkansas that he was from, or what have you. He was full of these crazy colloquialisms colloquialisms. Uh, one of them was, uh, don't just stand there with your teeth in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I think it means don't just stand there slack jawed and dumb looking, like do something. <laughs> okay. Evidently having teeth in your mouth must have been notable, but I think it was him or someone in, in my time in Missouri gave me this statement and I use it all the time. You can't play the coulda, woulda, shoulda game because you'll should all over yourself. Uh, it's a little crass, but I use it especially with dispatchers. You know, at work, if if a patient dies while you are on the phone, that has one level of tolerance. If you know that you did absolutely everything in your power to save them, you got help there right away, you, you followed the uh, CPR protocols to a T, you know, you did your job and that person was died in spite of you. It is a completely different experience. If there is anything even slight that you can pinpoint to say, I wish I would have done that better. And that is a whole nother layer that a dispatcher has to wrestle through and emotionally resolve. Um, because try as we might, we're still human beings. We don't do every mm. single thing perfect every single time. We're not a machine. We're human beings. And uh, it doesn't mean that that person did a bad job giving CPR or doing whatever other interventions might have been necessary for that call. Um, it just means that they found something that they could criticize, and you just can't do that. You can't play the coulda, woulda, shoulda game. You'll should all over yourself. And I have literally seen people, I know it's crass, but shoulding all over themselves. They're just covered in what they ought to have done. And it's not, it's not particularly helpful. No, this is so good. Brennan Manning. Back when we were in college at school here in Missouri, Brennan Manning spoke to our school in chapel. Do you happen to remember this at all? No, I had no idea I'd ever even heard Brennan Manning speak. I'm so sad that I've missed this. Please enlighten me. <laughs> so 
there are th- uh, two or three things from when he spoke in chapel that changed my life. One of them is that he spoke with his toes over the edge of the stage. Like he was like 90% on the stage and 10% off the stage. And to this day, I speak with that same way because it had a powerful way of connecting to be that close and without anything between you and the audience. Still do it to this day. Preached on Sunday, did it then. Wow. So he told this story and I hope I'm getting it right because it's been like 22 years or something. But he knew Shel Silverstein and he told this story of how, I think it was Silverstein, had this giant plaque over his living room couch. And I wish I could say it the way Brennan Manning said it, but I can't. Uh, But it said, today, I will not shoot on myself. Mm -hmm. And it's that exact same thought that you're saying. And I say this to people all the time. As a matter of fact, we had someone very similar to what you were just sharing. Uh, We had someone OD at our church and the funeral was just a couple of days ago. And I've talked with several staff members who are shoulda, woulda, shoulda, woulda, coulda-ing. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Coulda, woulda, shoulda-ing. And, you know, they know they don't need to. But it's amazing that even when you know you don't have to, your brain still can go there. Yeah, it absolutely can. And uh, you can just play that that tape, right? You can play that tape over and over and over. And it is really hard to set that tape aside and to say, what's done is done. I did my best and I can hang my hat on that. Uh, it may not have been perfect, but I know I did what I could do in that moment. Absolutely. Well, that and uh, it makes me think uh, at some point we will need to have a whole conversation about the idea of deceptive brain messages when your brain oh, is telling man. you things that are just not true and yeah. how impactful that idea has at least been uh, for me and I think for you as well as we've uh, kind of explored it over the last several months. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That would be a great episode. Although, uh, a kind of a vulnerable one, because you're exactly right. That is that has been really formative. You know, one of the things that I I took from uh, Brene Brown because she uses so many examples from her own life. She says, "Yeah, I I do. I I tell these stories, but I don't tell them until they are." fully processed. They've become a part of me. They are something Mm. that happened before. They are not something that is happening now. I have resolved whatever story I'm telling. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, isn't it? I've never, I've read a number of Brene Brown books and I don't recall that point. That's a great point. It's her way of making sure she's telling it for her audience's sake rather than for her own sake. Yeah, I think so. it's, It's not about her. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, man, that's good. Well, let me lighten the mood here a little bit. The one that I mentioned to you uh, a couple of weeks ago that actually uh, was the first time I think I'd ever mentioned this to you was number two, always sign with a blue pen. (laughs) Okay. First of all, why is that number two? Because number two should involve a pencil. (laughs) Why in the world... Should you always sign with a blue pen? This seems like such an arbitrary rule. 
okay, it's going to make sense, I think. Now, this is <laughs> maybe slightly dated, but I think it's still true. Part of this comes from the fact that I am, at heart, a number two guy. I have always been serving underneath somebody, which means I have done a lot of bringing things to somebody to sign. Hey, pastor, here's a pile of 15 cards I need you to sign. Hey, pastor, here's uh, up to 200 or 300 letters I need you to sign. And I would stand there and I would hold them and hand him the pen and just put one down. He would sign it and I would just keep moving them so he could just keep signing as fast as possible. And one of the things I realized, I found myself asking when I had him, I had the lead pastor signing all this stuff. Is there a way we could get this printed on here that looks real? Can I fudge the personal element of this? And of course you can, but if you're going to fudge it, probably the easiest way to fudge it is to make sure that the signature is the same color as the print, which means you're printing and you're making him sign in black. Mm -hmm. So a blue signature was originally a way for me to make sure that whether I was signing something or I was having the lead pastor sign something, it clearly wasn't a stamp. It clearly wasn't a print. Now, I understand you can color print stuff, but that's significantly more expensive. And so that was the driver. If we're going to take the time to hand sign this stuff, whatever this stuff may be, we deserve to get credit for it in the mind of the person who's receiving it. I don't want them thinking, oh, this is probably just a print. I want them to know we really signed it. <laughs> and so don't you dare sign in black. Um, that was really what was behind it. And I have said this so many times that literally I was coming in the door from taking my one son to ninja practice. He, he does like a men, American ninja warrior stuff. And he was, we were coming home from practice. And my, as I walked in the door, my daughter was standing there. She said, Hey, I have a permission slip. I need you to sign for this thing that we're doing at school. And she held it up in one hand, and in her other hand, she held it up, and she said, and here's a blue pen, Dad. <laughs> so clearly, I have said this to my children at least a few times. So that's a giant letdown, I'm sure. But that is why I always sign with a blue pen. All right. Fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Okay, well, if that's something you've said a thousand times over... I want to shift the conversation to thoughts, up-to-date, current thoughts. What are you thinking right now that is brand new, something you haven't talked about before? What's on your mind? Well, you know, I mean, in all honesty, I have been driving this conversation. You go first. I, I got to think about it for a second to figure out what else I'm thinking about. You go first. What have you been thinking about? Yeah. So, well, my thought has to do with translation. And specifically, I'm reading a book about the translatability of the gospel and, you know, the fact that we're translating the Bible all over the world into multiple different languages. And this is this project has been going on for some time now. And we take it for granted that the that the Bible can be translated. But the author that I'm reading suggests that translation is inherent within the gospel itself. 
And as a justification for this, he says, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, but it was recorded in Greek. And so he says from the very outset, the gospel is translated. And we see this playing out time and time again as we continue to translate the Bible into other languages. And we, most of us, interact with the Bible in English, a language it was not originally written in. But I'm really thinking about this both because of his book and his argument that translation is inherent within the gospel itself, but also because of my study in the book of Hebrews, where the author uses a number of Old Testament quotations in order to defend his argument, but he uses not the original Hebrew Masoretic text, but the translated Septuagint, which has been translated from Hebrew into Greek. Mm. And there are enough differences in the translation from uh, the Masoretic text to the Septuagint uh, that it's interesting that he would form his argument based on the Septuagint. And some of the some of the time, this argument is not itself supported by the Masoretic text because the word or the phrase that he uses is not represented in the same way in Hebrew. And so it brings me to this thought, which is the fact that language is at the same time expansive and inherently limited. And a couple of examples might help. There's an there's a African language in which the word for song is understood as the egg E-G-G, the egg of a dance. And I think that that is the most poetic and beautiful description of what a song is, and that's just how they conceive of it. It clearly shows their priority given toward dance, and the fact that a, a dance hatches from the egg of a song. And so the word for song has to do with this egg of a dance. But then there is also an Alaskan language where they don't have a word for sheep, which makes perfect sense. They don't have sheep up there. So if you go to translate the Bible into this language, what do you do when Jesus says, I am the Lamb of God, or he says to Peter, feed my sheep? This doesn't translate. You could use the word seal, I guess, but even that is not really the same because you don't raise seals uh, so how do you translate this concept into their language? So I think at the exact same time that language is both expansive, it is also limiting. And so I, it leads me to this question. Could it be that God uses a multiplicity of languages as a way of further revealing himself to the world? because he is too big for any one language to accurately describe him. And so he has to use the translatability of his good news into all of these different languages as a means by which we can further understand who he really is. That's awesome. I find that fascinating. Um, I'm still completely stuck on the song being the egg of the dance. I found that so fascinating. I had a hard time concentrating after that. <laughs> Good thing it's recorded. You can go back and listen. I was just going to say, I wish we were recording this, <laughs> but uh, you know, so that's amazing. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. 
Thanks. So, all right. I have sufficiently intervened and provided my thoughts. Now it is time for you to share yours. Awesome. Well, so today, just this morning, I finished uh, Art and Faith by Makoto Fujimura. And this is a very simple thought, but I just resonated with it so much. He said, as an artist, and I'm going to get the quote wrong. I actually need to go look it back up, but that's hard to do when you're listening to a book. But he said, preaching is the supreme art of the church. Hmm. I love that. I think it's so important for us to see preaching as an art, as a communication art, that we are trying to do something that has an aesthetic to it. We're trying to do something that is beautiful and captivating. We're trying to do so much more than just transmit emotion when we're trying to preach. Especially this man who I have been, I have spent hours looking at his paintings this year. Uh, I, I find his paintings to be really challenging and really complicated. But this is a man who spends so much time on a single painting. He will literally sometimes make his own paper and make his own pigments. And then he will put all of that together. And it's not just painting once, it's painting layers and layers and layers of paint. And he's willing to do all of that to create a work of art. And for that person to say preaching is an art is something that is more profound than if anybody else says it, because this is a guy who knows what art is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Having recently taken a preaching class, I'm still freshly thinking through the craft of preaching. And I love your analogy, especially with layering, because I think a good sermon begins with an outline, a structure of what you want to say, but then you have to lay on layers uh, things you know that give it texture and vitality. So stories, analogies, personal anecdotes. Uh, you have to bring it into a modern context. You have to uh, bring it alive in some ways, and then you have to challenge some assumptions, or you have to encourage a particular way of thinking. And I, I don't know. There's so, and then you have to have this well-crafted nugget that somebody could put in their pocket and and literally take with them and apply it to their lives. That doesn't come through a one-pass kind of deal. That has to be crafted like a piece of art. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's funny, I actually had not thought of that. Um, I just said the stuff about his layering art to make the point that he has a right to, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think about I preached on Sunday and one of the and we're working our way through Ephesians and it just was my turn to preach and I was talking about how we have this access to God's divine power and I intentionally juxtaposed a picture of the Hulk punching those giant flying robot dragon things from the original Avengers movie uh, where he just like throws a punch and like stops the thing in its tracks, even though it's like a hundred times bigger than him. I juxtaposed that image with an image 
of Jesus being crucified intentionally to say we have a different view of power, but in the context of it, because of this layering that you're talking about, I had to talk to the media team and I was like, guys, I am not going to say what I want thrown on the screen. I am emotionally building to a point where I need to be able to turn around, point at the screen, and a picture the picture of Jesus being crucified comes on the screen. I just need to be able to say that. And on it comes. And the timing has to be perfect or it's not going to work. Because it is a an intentional emotional building to this crescendo of the fact that we believe power is born of humility, meekness, and self-sacrifice. But I didn't want to say any of that. I just wanted to say, you all just applauded this picture of the Hulk, and what you really need to applaud is this picture of the crucified king. Yeah, that's powerful. And it was, you know, you're absolutely right. There was the layer of what does the Bible say? There was the layer of making it relevant. There was the layer of adding in the visuals and the whatever and and on and on it went. That's a great way to describe it, that there's layering in preaching that makes it art. Man, that's good. You stole my thought and made it better. (laughs) Hey, that's uh, that is exactly why this podcast exists. And I don't mean this as some kind of cheesy transition uh, because we're putting these thoughts out there and we want everybody else to make them better, not just each other. And so if you as a listener are engaged in what we're talking about today, jump on our Reddit thread. Let's talk about all this stuff. Uh, So uh, on Reddit, you can find us at r slash on the phone with Josh and let's talk. Do you have rules of life, things that you say all the time that have a story behind them? What is it? What's the story? And what are you thinking about? And do you have any reactions to what we're thinking about? We would love to hear from you. That's why we're doing this. Take our thoughts, make them better, bring your own, let other people make them better. That's what we're doing. Yes. Yeah. I can't wait to see what everybody writes and uh, I'm looking forward to interacting and engaging with it. That's going to be great. So- Um, All right. Well, are we on for next week? I can't wait. It's going to be good. I agree. Talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. Bye.